It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Before COVID-19, what percentage of meals did you eat outside the house? Did you go out to eat? Um, do you know, have any idea what percentage of the meals that you ate or the average? What What do you think is the American household average for the number of uh, or percentage of uh, meals eaten outside the home? I'll tell you in a minute. First, I want to thank patrons, people who have made the show possible. Uh, folks like Eric, EZ, and Grant, Joseph, Juanita, and Keith, and Lori, Mark, Marlon, Matthew, and Stephen. Thank you very much. They all became patrons to the show, and you can too by visiting thepetecalendarshow.com and clicking on the link. The show is also made possible by sponsors like Mattress Man Stores. Mattress Man has four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. They want you to know they are here. They are ready to help you have a better night's sleep, which may be a bit elusive in these uncertain times. With private appointments available by phone, by video conference, or even in-store, they're committed to serving you well and responsibly, safely, at this time. Simply provide your contact information, request an appointment date, and then they'll be in touch to schedule your appointment by whatever method you prefer. If you want to do the in-store appointment, uh, social distancing is observed, one guest, at a time in the store, uh, their card reader and registers are sanitized after each use and single use pillowcases are provided for each visitor. They have the 120 day comfort guarantee that ensures you're going to love the mattress. And if you don't, they will exchange it for free for a limited time. After all, sleeping on the right mattress helps combat stress and anxiety for your optimal health. Uh, don't let the fear of choosing the wrong mattress uh, add to that kind of anxiety that we all already have in these uncertain times. I feel like I just need to, to just keep adding that in. It's definitely been the marketing uh, phrase that everybody is using in these uncertain times. Mattressmanstores.com. You can click shop online, click that link, and you can order online right now. You can see all of the inventory they have in stock, uh, and you get the free local white glove delivery. Use the special discount code RESTWELL, that's R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, all one word, RESTWELL, and get an additional 20% savings site-wide. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. So before COVID-19... What percentage of meals did you eat outside the home? The North Carolina Agriculture Commissioner, Steve Troxler, was a guest for the John Locke Foundation's Shaftesbury event. Uh, they do these uh, sort of guest speaker luncheon events, and he was the guest this week, and he explained a couple of things regarding the uh, the food supply and meat processing and what's going on with the food industry uh, in these uncertain times. And he uh, and he went over, he mentions the number here. So uh, first, though, he's going to talk about uh, the disruptions to our food supply and how this occurred in two waves. What has happened, there's a simple explanation to a very complicated pro uh, problem that we have right now. But when we close the, uh, the restaurants down, the schools down, the universities down, uh, we're not having ball games, so all of the food demand uh, is shifted to the grocery store. 
Uh, that was the beginning of it. And fifty uh, percent of all the meals that we eat in the United States are actually eaten outside the home. There you go. Half. Half of all the meals we eat in America before these uncertain times, they were all eaten outside the home. And all of that shifted, almost all of it shifted to now being eaten inside the home. And now he's going to talk about how that impacted the entire distribution model. So all of this institutional food that we've been eating was shifted to grocery store demand and the grocery store simply could not keep up. Uh, that was the beginning. But then we saw the pandemic affect the processing plants across the nation, uh, especially our protein plants. So there's been that slowdown in processing. We've had many, many plants that have completely shut down. And without the processing, uh, you know, we, we don't have that food available. Uh, a cow in the pasture, or a hog in a hog barn, a chicken in a uh, chicken facility, uh, that's not the prepared food that we have to have as human beings to eat. So in a nutshell, uh, the pandemic started it with the shutdown of the different things that we shut down. And now the, the pandemic is limiting the workforce in our harvest plants and processing plants. All right. So the abrupt lack of the demand essentially created this dumping, right? Uh, you've probably seen or read stories uh, or seen videos or images of, you know, farmers letting crops go to, to waste, uh, you know, dumping. I think potatoes was one crop I saw. There was uh, a story about, you know, the, the, the dairy farmers just pouring all the milk down the drain. Um, so the processing capacity decreased due to outbreaks. Uh, and he says we should expect to see higher prices. So all of this stuff is sort of on a leg, you know, when decisions are made now, it, it, it impacts price. It, it can impact pricing and availability. Yes, right now. But a lot of that is sort of future looking. And so what's going to occur when the next uh, harvest, whether it's, you know, row crops or it's uh, pork bellies, like what happens when the next harvest comes due, the decisions that are made now have an impact on what's going to happen then and that's why a lot of the pricing with the commodities is all futures based so you're looking at what's going to occur down the line and so he says we should expect to see higher prices and fewer choices of cuts of meat right um a lot of animals are getting slaughtered they're not getting processed uh, especially pigs and chickens the industry calls this depopulating <laughs> the depopulation uh, and he explains this in a little bit more detail. Once these animals grow past a certain size, they no longer can efficiently be processed uh, in our meat harvest plants. And somebody has got to continue to feed these animals. As the animals grow larger and larger, they outgrow the space that uh, they have been uh, traditionally been raised in. So it becomes a you know a, a situation that you never want to get in but you have to be prepared for to be able to depopulate these animals in a hum humane way and then be able to dispose of these animals in an environmentally friendly way so we have a lot of experience in north carolina dealing with this not from this situation but from hurricanes and tropical storms where we have had to depopulate because of uh, those conditions and also have developed uh, disposal techniques that are more environmentally friendly. Uh, so we don't have a, 
an economic uh, catastrophe and an environmental catastrophe at the same time. And that's been the focus of the department uh, since we started uh, having so many hurricanes and tropical storms. We think we certainly can handle this, but we don't want to. Uh, we have chosen to work very hard with public health in North Carolina and local uh, health departments to keep these plants open and operating while at the same time doing as much as we can possibly do to um, encourage the workers to come to work. So this is an aspect that has heretofore not even been, I don't think, I've not seen it reported, discussed, analyzed, examined at all in uh, the coverage of North Carolina COVID-19. Yes, you've got people that are coming into the plants, and uh, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. And I've got some audio as well from the Health and Human Services Secretary about this. But one of the, but what he's just talking about there is the environmental impact of slaughtering massive numbers of livestock all at the same time. And are we equipped to handle that without causing an environmental catastrophe? on top of everything because do you think by the way do you think in an election year i know that's got nothing to do with any of the coverage but in an election year do you think that if these plants uh started polluting groundwater and stuff with all of the carcasses and the stench and flies and everything else like do you think like if there was some sort of an environmental catastrophe on top of this do you think that that might not uh you know hurt steve troxler's chances of re-election do you think that people might try to make some political hay out of that? I know, I know. You're being too cynical, Pete. <laughs> well, he is a Republican, so he lacks the big D shield that protects him from all kinds of uh, negative coverage. All right, let me uh, pick this back up. He's got about another minute and a half. Uh, the the president's uh, order uh, does help to keep the plants open uh, and maybe even make it easier to reopen, but a plant without workers is not going to do anything. So we've got to build that confidence in the workers that are in these plants that this is as safe uh, as any place that they can go to work. Uh, and and the companies are being very aggressive in, uh, in putting in the new CDC guidelines that are out there now. We had actually worked with uh, public health on the interim guidelines to uh, food processors across North Carolina and distributed to that to about 3,200 processing plants in North Carolina. So we'll continue down that path with working with the companies, working with public health, with CDC to make sure that there is worker confidence in these plants. The one thing that, that I hear that I want to clarify is the media says, well, this uh, this plant is infected. Uh, the probability of these plants having a, a massive infection inside of them is not very great. They're pretty sterile facilities and are cleaned thoroughly every day. But what we see is uh, people that are coming to work that uh, are sick or maybe even, even asymptomatic, uh, and it becomes community spread because we do have a lot of people working in these plants. Right. So there's tons of people coming into the plants, going back home, in and out. So it's not like a nursing home facility where everybody just stays there, right? You got people that are going out into the community, coming back in. And when you go into the facility, they work very, very close next to each other on these lines. They're shoulder to shoulder. 
and uh, and so they're trying to they're trying to convince the workers um, that and that, like let's be honest, it's generally uh, you know poor areas, poor people that are working in these plants, a lot of people of color that are working in these plants, and of course now that's being used by the left and say, oh, that's why white people don't care about what's going on. I mean, it sounds like. I mean, I care what's going on. This is the food supply we're talking about. Seems like these folks are trying very hard to keep these plants uh, operating as well. Uh, it, it is in all of our benefit for these plants to continue to operate, right? I think so. Again, I'm rooting for us humans, not the virus. I'm rooting for uh, people who are in America, uh, and uh, yes, to some extent, yes, around the world, yes, true. But I- I'm I'm predominantly focused on people in North Carolina, in America. I'm rooting for us, and uh, if that means that we can find a way to operate these plants safely, and the business and the companies are now, that's not to say that all the companies. Uh, are doing all they can or have been doing all they can, you're going to find certain companies that have not been doing a very good job. No doubt about it. Um, and I, I'm not going to sit here and defend companies that are that uh, uh, don't protect the workforce. Um, now, Mandy Cohen, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, she was asked about this. Um, and I've got the audio from that. But just as a side note, what the COVID-19 pandemic has has really clarified at least in my mind is uh which employers are good to work for and which ones are not which landlords are good to rent from and which ones are not which insurance companies right are good uh to be uh doing business with and which ones are not it has really clarified um sort of the the business ethic in various industries and employers. So uh, later in the day yesterday, the Health and Human Services Secretary Mandy Cohen was asked whether the Department of Health and Human Services would be doing anything to address the cases of COVID-19 in the meat processing plants. And she said this. We've always said we, we want to share information. We want that to be accurate. As you know, that these are not, this is not an industry regulated by the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, we want to make sure we're getting all of the information that we need in order to put that back uh, out uh, to you in an accurate way. In the meantime, obviously, we, are, we have already released uh, testing lab uh, data by zip code. Um, and folks know where where plants are across uh, North Carolina. So um, that that's a good start in terms of information that is out there right now. And again, these are we want to know both about what's happening at the plant, but also about the community, because we know these folks that are are working there and then are in their community as well. So we have to make sure we're paying attention to both, which we are. Um, And so I think the zip code level data gives you some good information to start with. But yes, we hear you and wanting um, more information about names. But again, because we don't regulate these industries, getting a full and clear, accurate picture of this um, is something we're still getting our our arms around, but we we hope to be able to share something soon. Right. They don't regulate the processing plants. DHHS doesn't. They don't regulate the plants. And you're trying to get this information from private sector uh, companies, and the Ag Commissioner uh, should be trying to get this information and sharing it with a, a DHHS. That needs to happen, which is one of the reasons why I asked this last week, which I thought it was interesting why 
now all of a sudden we got Steve Troxler sort of uh, emerging. <laughs> but I'm curious why he's never been part of the governor's press conferences. I know he's a Republican, Governor Cooper's a Democrat, but still, in these uncertain times, don't you think that you would bring the Republican Ag Commissioner in to talk about what's going on? If for no other reason you want to be cynical and political about it, you can sort of throw him under the bus and uh, have all the reporters, you know, swarm around him, because that's what would happen. Of course it would. You put him, a, you put a Republican out there, they're going to get all sorts of questions. It happened with Mark Johnson, the superintendent for public instruction, when Cooper brought him out early on. Maybe And maybe we'll see this. Maybe we'll see Troxler invited to be a part of these uh, press conferences. I think it's important, especially if these plants are uh, one of the hot spot locations in addition to nursing homes, um, that, that this is where these outbreaks are tending to occur, then I think it is entirely appropriate. I think it's required that you bring the Commissioner of Agriculture to your press briefings. Um, Andrea Blanford with ABC 11 asked, oh, that's uh, a separate topic. All right, hang on a second. I've got one more audio clip from Mandy Cohen, but I don't want to leave the food processing plan because there are a couple of stories here with some information that I want to pass on. So as of late last week, there were about 1,100 confirmed cases of COVID-19 at 22 meat and poultry processing plants in North Carolina. Okay, so there are 22 plants and there are about 1,100 cases. So what does that work out to be? About, what, 50 at each plant, right? Is that right? Yeah, about 50 at each plant. Um, that number of reported confirmed cases has more than doubled uh, since the prior week. So that's the kind of scale, and that's the, the, and the doubling um, is concerning because, especially with this virus, because it is so contagious, that uh, you see this rapid escalation, which, by the way, this is one of the reasons why you want to have widespread testing uh so you could you know set up these tests for example and now they've gotten them to where you can get some swabs and are they all right are they 100 percent accurate no they are not um but they are they can be pretty accurate they could be 80 85 percent accurate and the idea is if you are taking um these tests they've gotten less intrusive there's some uh there's like a spit um test that you can do now not like the the swab that goes in and like I don't know, roots around in your brain. Um, but there's a, so there are a number of new tests that you can do. And the idea here is that you get the tests done um, throughout the day at these plants. You know, when you walk in, you can get tested, have your temperature read, go to work, lunch break, get your temperature read, um, you know, afternoon break, get your temperature read, do another test on the way out the door. And then they would know if there is an outbreak, if somebody is now presenting or maybe they're asymptomatic, now they can help uh, you know, quarantine, basically, the people that were around you on your part or in your part of the plant. So that kind of testing regimen helps keep the outbreaks contained. So I know there are a lot of people that are uh, poo-pooing the testing, but this is why the testing is of value. This is why it matters is because if you have enough testing going on, then you've got the ability to uh, to read, you know, to identify that this is occurring, who's got it, you're able to then say, you go home, everybody that worked with you, you're now getting tested, you go home, and we're going to keep testing you for the next, you know, three, four, five days, uh, make sure that you don't uh, have it, and if you don't have it, then you come back to work. Um, 
she was asked, Mandy Cohen was asked about um, the uh, sick leave policies, and she said that the uh, processing plant owners that she spoke with uh, that uh, at the beginning of all this, they said that they do provide paid sick leave. So, and by the way, this may be something that occurs um, going forward. There may be some changing of the laws regarding sick leave as it relates to COVID-19. You get a positive test for COVID-19 and you got to self, you know, quarantine for uh, two weeks or, or a month. I mean, who, who eats the cost of that? Do, you know, do all the employers do? Or what if you've been building up all of your sick time and you know, you've got the month, great, but if you haven't, uh, then you're in some real trouble, right? And you're going to get fired for that? There are some uh, things that these plants are doing. They're staggering their lunch breaks for workers, and they're putting in plexiglass shields on the on the the assembly line or not some I guess well, I guess it's the uh, the disassembly line. Uh, they're putting these shields, plexiglass barriers between people. So you're basically going to be in these little, boxes like we're all going to be like david blaine i guess going forward <laughs> um the u.s has about 2700 slaughter plants or i think they're called was it abattoir i think it's what they're abattoir i think it's spanish um 800 of these 2700 plants are federally inspected in march the country saw meat beef and pork production reach record highs. That according to the U.S. Agriculture Department. Why? Everybody's staying home, right? We've got more, uh, Christy and I have cooked more um, uh, meals now, I think, than we ever did (laughs) uh, in our entire marriage combined, you know, more together in March and April than we ever have uh, in the uh, 10 years prior. So people are staying home a lot more. This also uh, was evident in uh, egg consumption as well. Tons of people eating eggs all, all over the place now because they're all home. So Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue announced last week the department would be buying substantial amounts of meat to build up frozen storage supplies and help keep food banks stocked and ease the financial burden facing American farmers. Quote, the bigger impact is on the farmers. They're going to have to make longer term impact um, decisions in terms of missed revenue, uh, decrease the prices on their investments that they've already made. Jim Monroe of the National Pork Producers Council said the current USDA bailouts for farmers related to pandemic are not enough to save an already struggling industry at the front end of the food supply chain. Quote, it's created two crises, a financial crisis and an animal welfare crisis. The financial crisis is because there are too many hogs nowhere to go. Their values have dropped. So you've got an overcrowding challenge on the farms. Because each animal uh, needs, you know, access to the water and the food. And what are you? And what you are forced into uh, is a really tragic decision because you can't properly care for all of these animals. Monroe said the industry is hitting that point where farmers may have to start euthanizing hogs that have grown too large to fit on the processing lines. I think I referred to this a couple of days ago as too fat to kill, which... I think then uh, somebody suggested sounded like the uh, the name of some sort of uh, obese James Bond movie. Like I don't, yeah, could be long term consequences though. A less competitive industry says, and that's never good for consumers. 
Yeah, because you're going to have fewer farmers that survive and uh, a lot more consolidation, and that means uh, less competition uh, in the future, which is not generally good for consumers. The Pete Callender Show is made possible by some great sponsors like Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you prepared for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus, real military surplus for more than 30 years? The answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. You can text Tim, the owner of Old Grouch's Military Surplus at 565-2497. Ask about an order, get some advice. Um, ask about an item. He can probably find it if he doesn't already have it. Oldgrouch.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Rowena Patton will get your house sold fast and for more money. Current events obviously have impacted us all in various different ways, and you may need to sell your home, but you're thinking, well, we don't want traffic coming through our house and getting all of the uh, COVID germs on everything. We don't want that. Well, Rowena has investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer that saves you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Give her a call, 333-4483. That's 333-4483 and mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. Also, the show is made possible by Schaefer Smith. Schaefer Smith Design, if you're trying to set up or improve your business website, it can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me, and I needed a logo, I needed the website, I needed all of this stuff set up. Oh, and I needed to actually do the show. So let my friend Schaefer Smith help you with logos, graphics, design, photos, online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security for professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith, make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and for you so you can use your website confidently and uh, with expertise and you can adapt quickly to whatever uh, the market demands. SchaeferSmith.com. That's S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R, SchaeferSmith.com. The increasing possibility of a breakdown in the meat supply chain in the United States due to COVID-19 has prompted Representative Thomas Massey, a congressman out of Kentucky, he's a Republican, uh, and he has renewed his push for a bill that would make it easier for small, independent slaughterhouses and meat processors to sell directly to consumers. Large meatpacking plants across the country have shut down due to fears of COVID-19 outbreaks among workers, and uh, less and less meat is actually making it to grocers and restaurants. Wendy's actually ran out of beef for hundreds of its restaurants, which led to, of course, many Twitter jokes about its most famous uh, commercial, the Where's the Beef commercial, in case you were unaware. Uh, the Processing Revival and Intrastate Meat Exemption Act a.k.a. the Prime Act. It would exempt smaller specialty slaughterhouses from having to comply with the Department of Agriculture's guidelines in order to, uh, for their meat to be sold to consumers and businesses within the state. Now, I can tell you, um, I, had, uh, I have relatives who were in this line of work uh, raising uh, pork and, um, well, I guess they were raising pigs, which then became pork, but yeah, I guess raising pork. And in the state of North Carolina, there were very few independent slaughterhouses where small farms could take their uh, their pigs to market. By the way, did you ever know when like this little piggy went to market? That's what that that's what that means. It means they're going to the abattoir, <laughs> to the slaughterhouse. 
Yeah, I didn't know that until I was in my 40s. Anyway, uh, they had a real problem getting their meat to um, to slaughterhouses because there aren't a lot that are able to comply with all of the regulations. And so you end up with all of these small farmers using very few slaughterhouses. And if anything happens, like a pig doesn't die immediately and everything gets shut down, then it jams up the entire process. And now you've got a backlog and the farmers can't get their pigs uh, to market. And um, it's a real problem. And uh, so this idea here is to say, you know what, let's let some of the slaughterhouses uh, take their uh, the products and, and sell direct to consumer, right, direct to businesses. They would uh, instead be bound by state regulations for meat processing and sales. So while a slaughterhouse in Colorado uh, would not be able to process meat for sale in California unless it follows USDA guidelines, the federal guidelines in that case, it would be able to sell meat to nearby towns, right? This is the idea. Is that the farmers go bring it? Because a lot of farmers, they're not interested. They raised it. You know, they're not in the whole retail side of the operation. They're bringing it someplace. And now can you, I'm going to have it slaughtered and you take care of it. You do something with it, right? You sell it. Well, if the slaughterhouse is able to do that and they say, hey, we're going to sell all this meat. Here it is. It's all slaughtered. It's all frozen. Come and get it. Then they can do that, but only in their, uh, in their state. And if it's going to go across state lines, then the federal rules would apply. Uh, The Prime Act actually dates back to 2015. Long before the pandemic forced big meat processing plants to shut down, America had a massive shortage of slaughterhouses that could sell to consumers. This is all due to a law that was passed like 50 years ago called the Wholesome Food Act, which prohibits slaughterhouses from selling meat directly to the public unless they follow all the USDA rules. People who own their own livestock can bring them to the slaughterhouse for their own consumption, but that's not a feasible solution for most people, right? Unless you're raising your own pigs, that's not a feasible solution. The extensive red tape has made it possible for smaller meat processing facilities to help deal with the, um, or made it impossible, I should say, for these smaller facilities to help deal with the supply breakdown, even in their own states and communities. So this is a bill that's been around for... Uh, five years now the latest version got reintroduced last may a year ago but it has so far now picked up 13 new co-sponsors since the pandemic 35 total co-sponsors are mostly republican but there are some democrats now in the mix from agriculture heavy states like california and florida this was a story by scott shackford uh the associate editor at reason magazine reason.com by the way i always have all of this stuff linked up at the pete page ThePeteCalendarShow.com. Many of North Carolina's restaurants uh, may permanently close because of the COVID-19. Saddled with debt, payroll, mounting utility bills, North Carolina restaurants are struggling to remain open even as the state starts to ease stay-at-home restrictions. Governor Cooper's plan to reopen restaurants with limitations beginning May 22nd, but... Owners are having to make tough choices right now, reports WRAL, which has finally uh, gotten around to doing this story. Every day it gets harder and harder, says Lou Retta, the owner of An American Table in Rocky Mount. 35% of restaurant owners in the state say that they can stay afloat beyond two months of closing down. That's it. 35% say they can stay afloat. That means 65% say they can't. 65% of restaurants say they cannot stay afloat after shutting down. Well, 
Cooper shut down all the restaurants on March 17th. They're not going to get to reopen until March 22nd. That tells me, using my powers of logic and deductibility, I uh, have come to the conclusion that two-thirds of the restaurants in North Carolina will be gone by March 22nd, two weeks from now. Not even. Ten days. All right, Ten days from now, two-thirds of all the restaurants in North Carolina, gone. And uh, cities in the state like Asheville... Um, but also, obviously, in uh, other touristy areas down at the beach as well, they're they're done. It's gonna be it's gonna be more than that. Th- these numbers are in line with the national survey numbers that were done last month. This appeared at RestaurantBusiness.com in a piece by Heather Lally. Independent operators surveyed by the James Beard Foundation said that they would uh, they had already laid off ninety one percent of their hourly workers. Ninety one percent. One in five restaurant owners expects to remain open for the duration of the government-mandated dine-in shutdown. There has been the formation of a group called the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Um, Katie Button from Curate in Asheville, she's a big proponent of this. She's on board with this. She says the government's Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, does not meet the needs of independent restaurants, saddling them with tremendous debt while still making them vulnerable to closure. More than half of the operators surveyed said that they had uh, taken on more than uh, $50,000 in new debt obligations due to the pandemic. These businesses are are taking on so much debt right now just to stay alive in the hopes that they get to reopen. 80% of these respondents to this industry survey say they applied for the uh, Small Business Administration loans, 58% applied for the Economic Industry Disaster Loan or Grant, and 34% said they applied for community-based loans and grants in their cities and states. I am going to be surprised if the uh, culture of ubiquitous dining out options remains. Yeah, I really am. I, I don't see how it's possible. And anybody, I think, who has worked in restaurants, and I've worked in restaurants, I did for about a decade, um, and I worked in small, you know, independent mom-and-pop restaurants, and I worked in uh, chain restaurants. And the chains are going to probably be the ones that are best able to survive, maybe. But, they're, I mean, they're, they're going to go out of business, too. A lot of them are going to go out of business, too. Restaurants don't have huge profit margins. And even if you can do a dine-in kind of a service, you're not going to be selling. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants I saw that like they've just sort of cut back on all their alcohol sales because you can't put people at the bar. And that's usually what pads the numbers for a lot of restaurants. Alcohol sales. Upselling you know, at the table is one thing, but the you know, bar business... I just I I just don't know. And there's so much about that industry that I mean, it's like a science, you know, that you've got to turn the tables a certain amount of times each shift in order to staff enough servers. Um, Christy and I recently when was this? I'm trying to remember when we went down. I guess it was February. Yes, because I had uh, this was after I had gotten laid off at uh, WWNC and the whole family was going down to Hilton Head. Uh, they had already booked the, the trip and everything. My folks had a, a timeshare down there. And so we went down and stayed uh, for like two days with them and saw everybody. Uh, I want to say it was back in February and early February. Yeah. And um, we went to a restaurant one morning and 
there were there was a whole section that was just closed off. Now that section was closed off, and it said it was due to um, a, a labor shortage on the island. There were, they just couldn't get enough people to work the jobs. But that, I suspect, is going to be sort of the new look. You're going to have these restaurants that survive, that do make it. They're going to have huge spaces with very few tables. And the prices then are going to have to go up, right? It's going to cost more money to go out to eat for what would have been, you know, maybe a, you know, a $10, $15 meal at a restaurant per person now is going to run you maybe $25, 30 bucks. Just my guess. Also, I think what's going to change, nursing homes, congregate care facilities. There's going to be a whole new look to these facilities. In North Carolina, four nursing homes have reported more than 100 of the COVID-19 cases that we have on record. According to the latest data, um, there have been more than 2,077 laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 cases in our nursing homes in this state. 267 deaths, according to the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. In residential care facilities, 388 people have tested positive for the virus, 41 have died, while 1,000 inside of correctional facilities tested positive, and 12 have died. Right, so you've got different breakouts. You've got nursing homes, residential care facilities, and correctional facilities. The biggest number that we're seeing uh, for these outbreaks is in um, nursing homes. And you got 2,000 lab-confirmed cases and 267 deaths. So what does that work out to be? Is that one out of 10? One out of 10 that gets it dies, roughly? The latest data include cases that are part of the ongoing outbreaks as well as cases associated with these settings that are not part of an ongoing outbreak. There are outbreaks now at 62 nursing homes across the state, 25 residential care facilities, and 16 correctional facilities. And then there are like half a dozen, quote, other facilities. Uh, there have been outbreaks at another half dozen, but they are considered to be now over. So what is an outbreak? This is a key uh, piece of information. What counts as an outbreak? What would you consider to be an outbreak? Like if you had to say, uh, define an outbreak at a nursing home, what would what would the definition of an outbreak be? You don't know what the state definition is? Two or more cases confirmed by a lab, so not just somebody who's symptomatic, but you actually have the uh, the blood work. It says. Uh, or the, the, the swab test and says, yep, you, yeah, you got it. You have it right now. And yeah, that's a lab confirmed case. Two, two counts as an outbreak. Um, Rand Paul made a comment <laughs> on Twitter, uh, the other day on this, uh, score, he says hospitals, uh, he was looking at an NPR story that said hospitals lose money during uh, the pandemic, healthcare workers face layoffs and cut hours. I told you about this last week. I have relatives who are nurses and, uh, they, they can't get hours in North Carolina. They can't get hours, uh, because the hospitals just keep, um, what they call it census. I think was the word they were using, using the census. I think that's based on, and when they when they say census, it means that uh, it's the number of patients that are that they have, and if you don't have a census, then you, or you don't have enough in the census, then you don't need the staff. Um, and Rand Paul said uh, only the government could cause one million unemployed healthcare workers during a pandemic. 
pretty much. And this brings me back to um, a piece that Eric Erickson wrote a couple of weeks ago, and I I mentioned just a part of it at the time, and I never I never sort of fleshed it out. But um, he wrote a piece. I think it's called The Resurgent is his website, The Resurgent. Um, and uh, he wrote a piece called What's the Real Number? The New York Times, he said, uh, did a report uh, that we're undercounting the death toll from COVID-19. It could be by like 40,000 people. And the Financial Times had a report that um, we may have missed the global death toll by like 60% of cases. So there is this concern that we've undercounted. By the way, I am aware there is a concern on the other side that we are overcounting COVID-19 related deaths. Okay, Concurrent to both of these studies is the belief among a lot of people also that the death toll is not only overblown, but the virus is far more common and widespread than believed. Now, the second part of this comes from the rush of press reports about antibody studies. And to be sure, it appears that the virus is more widespread and more people have it, have had it, right? And this can be good. This can be a good thing that if you if it turns out that way more people have had it, they've been exposed to it, that that, that helps develop the herd immunity. And it, it's indicative that while highly contagious and very lethal for certain populations, it may not be so for the vast majority. And I'm saying vast majority, like 90 plus percent of the population. Right. So and he goes on to say, I can give you all the data, but it's on you whether to believe it. We should acknowledge also that Congress has provided a financial incentive for hospitals to overinflate deaths from COVID-19 um, under one of the uh, the relief. Uh, it was the CARES Act that they did, one of the relief bills, because they tied the money to COVID treatment. And so hospitals who are obviously now hemorrhaging money and laying off staff or furloughing staff, right? They, they see this as, OK, well, let's just code everything as a COVID death and we'll get more money out of the federal government. That then allows people to sort of take comfort in this idea that all of the deaths are exaggerated and things aren't so bad because their prior belief uh, was that we should never have sheltered in place. And when they see this information that, ah, the federal government is giving you money if you call it a COVID death, so hospitals are going to are going to overinflate the, the, the death count. Um, and so that then confirms their prior belief, right? Confirmation bias. You want to believe it because you had an opinion before, and this confirms your opinion, okay? Um, which, by the way, I think there are any number of reasons why people arrived at the opinion that we never should have sheltered in place or stayed at home and all of this. And some of them are more valid than others. But at the beginning of this, you got to keep in mind of where we were. And we knew nothing. And we still don't. We still know very little about all of this. Uh, and so we're learning. And, you know, for people now who are coming along saying, well, I didn't think we should have done any of this at the beginning. And so look at this. Aha, I'm right. I was right the whole time. Um yeah, no, you, you you were taking a guess back then just as anybody else was. And uh, if if your guess turns out to be more accurate than not, that just means your guess was more accurate than not. It doesn't mean you have any expertise in anything, right? Making a good guess uh, is not something that I would rely on <laughs> going forward when setting policy or response to pandemics, right? That's just... Anyway, that, I mean, that's just my take on it. I, I would prefer to rely on, uh, I don't want to say, quote, the experts, because then everybody can cite an expert that's been wrong, because all experts are wrong, because experts are people and they are wrong, too. Um, but it's why you want a lot of different people at the table. It's why I've been arguing against using only 
healthcare industry, medical professionals to make these policy decisions for the society at large. You need to have this. Why I keep asking, who's the governor talking to when he's making these decisions? Because they are far more about the the population, the society than just healthcare, right? You need, he needs to have economists there, business people, mental health professionals, as well as the medical people. You need all of these folks at the table because the, there, are, there are deaths that are attributable to despair or to lockdowns and shutdowns and stuff. You, you're creating a Great Depression, and there, that will have a human uh, body count attached to it. So this idea, you know, I've been saying this, it's not lives versus money, it's lives versus lives. Eric Erickson says the data is consistent across countries and cities that there are huge spikes in deaths in areas plagued by the virus, much more so than normal and much outside the bounds of normal ranges for strokes and heart attacks in those areas. This reasonably does suggest COVID-19 is killing people at home. On top of that, we are not making apples to apples comparisons in most things, including flu deaths in the U.S., the flu and the pneumonia deaths. They're counted based on confirmed tests and presumed cases. COVID-19 numbers, as reported by the CDC, they currently only include confirmed positive cases. Contrary to some speculation, the CDC is not yet reporting presumed cases uh, with the positive tests. Okay, this is a key. Lab confirmed tests. That's what the CDC is counting. When you compare it to flu and influ uh, and uh, uh, was it the flu and yeah and pneumonia. When you compare it to flu and pneumonia, those are confirmed plus presumed. Okay, so it's not even an apples to apples. He says it's silly to think there's a grand global conspiracy to rig data, and it's remarkable that globally we are seeing very similar rates of hospitalization and deaths. Now, maybe the virus is pretty bad, right? Maybe the, maybe it really is. Maybe there are some cases that are mischaracterized, and maybe some of the deaths, uh, the deaths are exaggerated. But right now, COVID-19 has killed people at rates of uh, uh, rate, uh, rate orders rather of magnitude higher than even a bad flu. Even if the numbers dropped based on error or fabrication, they'd have to drop massively to get down to flu rates just based on positive tests. That, again, is something people are missing as they clutch the pearls of antibody testing as proof that the virus is massively widespread. In 2018 and 2019, for an entire year, there were less than 7,000 people who died of the flu or pneumonia based on a positive test. Okay, he says, now I'm excluding presumed cases, exclude the presumed deaths. Just look at the confirmed cases, positive tests. And based on that, 7000 people died of flu or pneumonia 2018 to the 20, uh, 2019 that season. Less than 7000 people died in six months. Thus far, eight or nine weeks of covid. 50 to 60,000 Americans died based on positive COVID tests, okay? So are we really to believe that 40,000 of those deaths are from something other than COVID-19 and then the paperwork is all rigged on all of this? Or even if it's, cut it in half, is it 20,000? Those who recognize how bad the virus is should not be poo-pooing the idea of reopening the country, though. It needs to reopen. We need to be cautious. But we sheltered in place for weeks, we got the viral rate down, and people need to get back to work. 
He says if the virus is going to come back in the fall, we might as well start now finding ways to reopen and go on with life while accommodating it. There is no better time than now to figure out the path forward. In another piece by Connor Friedersdorf at TheAtlantic.com headline, Take the Shutdown Skeptics Seriously. This is not a straightforward battle between a pro-human and a pro-economy camp. Okay, I've been saying this now for over a month. It, only idiots and ideologues are framing it as such, okay? If you're framing this as lives versus money, you are demagoguing it or you're a dumbass, okay? So, casting the lockdown debate as some sort of a, a straightforward black and white battle between pro-human, pro-economy camps, the actual trade-offs are not straightforward. Set aside for a second the flattening the curve, right, which... That will continue to make sense. Flattening the curve. If you believe, as I do, the original intention behind flattening the curve, which was to do what? Right? To space out the cases so as to not overwhelm the system, which leads to then unnecessary deaths. Right? Set that aside. Is, well, are ongoing onerous shutdowns warranted beyond what is necessary to avoid overwhelming ambulances, hospitals, morgues? Do the shutdowns warrant this continuation of uh, these shios? And some of them are pretty draconian. The answer depends in part on an unknown. How close is the country to containing the virus? And we don't know this answer. If we knew that there was going to be some you know, pretty effective treatment and then this was coming down the pike soon, it was imminent, or if we knew that there was a vaccine, it was only a couple months away, then minimizing infections through social distancing until that moment occurs, that would be the right course, right? But at the other extreme, if we never have any effective treatment or vaccine and everybody's going to get infected eventually, then the cost of social distancing, it's untenable, right? We don't know where we sit on this spectrum, though. And so we can't know what the best way forward is, even if we place the highest possible value on preserving life and protecting the vulnerable. Prolonged shutdowns could cause more deaths or harm uh, to the vulnerable than they actually spare. That's There is this you know, perverse, unintended consequence aspect to all of this that a lot of the uh, uh, the anti-open crowd uh, they, they don't they don't ever contemplate or account for. For example, ongoing closures and supply chain interruptions in wealthier countries could actually have catastrophic ripple effects in poorer ones. International food aid, for example, the donations dry up. The food is going to stay where it's uh, uh, getting the highest compensation, right, where it's going to be able to get the highest uh, value in, in wealthier countries that are able to afford to produce it and to buy it. They're the ones that are going to get the food, which means poorer countries that rely on the donations of international aid, they're not going to get it and they're going to starve to death. Is that contemplated in any of the anti-open models? I've never heard them talk about that aspect of it. You also have the deaths of despair, the overdoses that go up, suicides go up, addiction rates go up. All of that stuff goes up in economic declines. Over at ARC Digital, ARC Digital, Esther O'Reilly asks, uh, quote, why should we assume that crashing the economy would leave the healthcare system standing? It's a great question, right? 
crashing the economy, why do you think that the healthcare system remains propped up? Fleshing out the matter, she says, quote, you can't keep the hospital lights on without keeping on the lights of the economic sectors undergirding it. Yes, our doctors and nurses are running out of masks and gloves, which is a serious problem. It would also be a serious problem if we lost the means and the manpower to make more masks and gowns, or if the hospitals ran out of cash on hand so they can't buy more beds or ventilators. See, there's the rub, right? We're being told that we cannot fight the virus without pausing the economy, yet we cannot fight the virus without the economy. This is a great way to frame it and a great way to think of it, right? You cannot fight the virus without the economy. School closures. The Lancet noted that education is one of the strongest predictors of the health and wealth of a country's future workers and the impact of long-term school closures on educational outcomes and future earnings and the health of young people and the future national productivity has not been quantified here. The general point is that Minimizing the number of COVID-19 deaths today or a month from now or six months from now may or may not minimize the human costs of the pandemic when the full spectrum of human consequences is considered. The last global depression created conditions for a catastrophic world war that killed 75 to 80 million people. Is this a possibility? Right. The downside risks and costs of every approach, they are real, they're frightening and depressing, no matter how little one thinks of reopening right now. These facts may not be evident from the least thoughtful proponents of reopening, many of whom advance arguments that are uninformed, dismissive of experts, or callous. But the warnings of thoughtful shutdown skeptics do warrant careful study, not stigma rooted in the false pretense that they don't have any plausible concerns or value human life. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a thumbs up in the reviews, and consider becoming a patron of the program. You get cool stuff, exclusive content. It's all at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.